Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today. I mean, he's someone that I've been tracking his progress for quite a while, you know, quite an entrepreneur. You know, he's done it multiple times. And I think that we're going to be learning a lot about raising money about operating in very regulated uh, segments, uh, but uh, nonetheless, we're going to be learning quite a bit and having some fun. So I think without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sam Hodges. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Looking forward to it. So originally born and raised in California. So tell us about your upbringings. Give us a little bit of the walk through memory lane, especially growing up in a household where there was a lot of arts, a lot of academics going on, so a little bit of everything. Definitely. So I am a, a very proud West Coaster. I grew up in Oregon and in California. My parents are, you know, scientists and engineers, as are my grandparents on, on both sides. And so I grew up in a very um, academically oriented household where uh, learning uh, was really valued. I remember when my uh, when I was six, I think my my grandparents got me a a, a microscope as my uh, you know birthday gift, and that was kind of par for the course for the type of uh, gifts given in the uh, in the Hodges household. And it was, it was a great, I mean, it was a great upbringing. We didn't have a ton of money, but I got a lot of exposure to ideas and knowledge really early, gained a great appreciation for science, technology, um, engineering, you know, saw my dad actually try to start uh, a company at one point. And so uh, definitely, you know, when I think back, some of those early experiences definitely have influenced how I thought about my own career, you know, not much later. 
Now, out of all things neuroscience and politics, it sounds like that was quite an interest of yours. So two different things. So, I mean, how did you become interested in both of those things? Uh, so when I was um, coming out of high school, a couple of things uh, kind of had shaped my interest academically. One was, um, frankly, just uh, familial. Um, one of my uncles is a very prominent uh, neuroscientist, was a, a senior researcher at Johns Hopkins for many years. And um, I think that inspired me and uh, kind of opened my eyes to some of the really interesting thinking and work that was being done in neuroscience and cognitive science and um, brain imaging and so forth. And so when I went to undergrad, one of the things I was looking for was a place, a school, where they had a strong uh, neuro and cog science uh, program. And then very other kind of side of my brain, I guess, one of my most inspiring high school teachers was my AP history teacher and just really sparked a deep intellectual interest in history, economics, and politics, and particularly how you can use um, you know, different frameworks at the intersection of those disciplines to understand you know, the way the world works and, and why it works. Uh, the way it works. And so that was also a deep area of intellectual curiosity uh, uh, for me, you know, kind of early inspiration, you know, from a, from a humanist perspective, I guess I would say. And so those were two things that when I thought about where I wanted to go for, for undergrad, um, I wanted a place where I could, where I could pursue both. Now you ended up in Brown, uh, but after Brown, it was really via an internship, how you got into a strategic consulting. Now, one of the things that, uh, that I really come across when, when I speak with entrepreneurs, especially with some of the most successful ones, is that they have some type of a background in consulting or investment banking or, or perhaps private equity or VC. I mean, in your case, I mean, you've, you've done you know, a few of those. So I guess, especially the consulting side, how do you think it has helped you to think about problems? It's a great question. So I had no idea what I wanted to do with myself professionally coming out of undergrad. I, I definitely felt a bit adrift. And I was lucky in that I had a really interesting internship between my junior and senior year of college. I kind of lucked into, honestly, I wasn't particularly well qualified for it um, at a, an ad management consulting firm. And so it just it started to you know peel back the, uh, the, the envelope a bit on you know, this big, crazy thing called business. And so you know, I, I decided to put on the shelf my interest in getting a PhD. I think earlier in my college career, that was my plan. We would go, go do something that was much more academically oriented. And so um, coming out of school, went to a consulting firm. Definitely learned a, a ton. I was really lucky to work at a small boutique firm where the partners and principals and managers put a huge premium on developing and coaching junior consultants. And also, frankly, giving us probably more rope than we deserved um, in doing client work. And so things that it taught me early on one is um, that I needed to be really thoughtful and rigorous in approaching problems and thinking, particularly if I was interacting with you know, senior people who are under a lot of time pressure to get things done. But it also taught me that I could hold my own, even in rooms where the people were a lot more experienced and frankly, more, more capable um, than, than I was. And that I could still, you know, in a small way at least, you know, add some value in those conversations if I really put uh, the work into it. Secondly, I do think consulting is really useful in developing frameworks and heuristics to think through and solve business problems. And just gives you a lot of exposure really, really quickly, which I think is useful from a pattern recognition perspective. Um, and also, frankly, in terms of honing you in on the types of businesses or problems that uh, you are more excited about. And for me, the client work that I love the most, I love working with growth companies, and I loved working on new product work and go-to-market work. And those were things that I really gravitated toward and so that, that's, that was kind of a signal to me on some level that I should go and, and 
pursue business opportunities where I could really, you know, scratch that itch, uh, uh, so to speak. So I didn't stay in consulting that long, only stayed in for about two years, but uh, definitely I'm appreciative of the time that I did. And then you transition into VC, I guess that access or exposure to tech and insurance, uh, you know, seem to be the the perfect uh, blend with the, with the VC side because I mean, we're talking still at the very early stages of, of fintech. I mean, at that point, now everyone is talking about fintech. I mean, back then, you know, there was not that much going on. So I guess, what was it like, the landscape at that point? And, and what were some of the, what people call on the investment side, pattern recognitions that you saw on companies that were performing better than others? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, to kind of set the time scale, this is back in 2006, um, early 2007, when I transitioned out of consulting and then ended up in a role at a, a venture capital and growth equity fund. And I remember distinctly, I was talking to one of my former bosses, and I told him that I was going to go work on investing in insure tech and fintech. And he looked at me in a very puzzled way and was like, what's that? And that was that would definitely, I, I would say that that was kind of the sentiment at that point in time. People did not think of fintech or insure tech as really standalone things. There, no, there were a few examples, right? I mean, you had E-Trade, you know, uh, PayPal was around at this point in time. There, there were a few others as well. But it wasn't this vibrant, rich, Cambrian explosion of companies that uh, we certainly are, have seen over the last uh, four or five years. Back then, most of the focus was on technology and services for existing um, incumbent players. So, you know, software and services for banks. Um, and, and you know, non-bank specialty lenders, and then also uh, technology, um, in, in my case, where I spent a lot of time, technology for um, incumbent insurers and uh, insurance distributors. And so I was really lucky. I ended up working very closely with this guy named Larry Wilson, who a lot of people consider to be the godfather of InsurTech. Terrific guy. Um, he, you know, he's still around and kicking, doing, doing some really interesting work as an investor and board member. But he had started a company in, in I think it was 1976, which was a, a company called Policy Management Systems Corporation, PMSA, very first insure tech company out there. And so having a chance to just, you know, be at this guy's elbow as we met companies and did deals was just tremendous exposure for me on, number one, kind of what great looks like as an entrepreneur, but then also just picking up on some of the, the, the themes that uh, make for interesting companies in, in kind of the fintech and insure tech category uh, more broadly. And in this case, I mean, you perhaps uh, failed... That it was time to take a look at what a company, you know, that is uh, in the hyper growth mode would look like to, to take a look at that, you know, more internally as an operate on the operating side. And you went to second market to buy with Barry Silver. Uh, I know that there there was quite an, a, an interesting time because you were doing a lot of things at the same time. And especially, you know, there was one project that was about to go belly up. So uh, I'm sure that that was one of those crazy experiences that gave you access to all the fires that you need to put out when you are a hyper-growth company? So, so working with and for Barry at that point in second market has definitely been one of the more formative experiences I've had in my career. I mean, uh, Barry is a great entrepreneur. He's gone on to do uh, even greater things since, since when I worked with him. And um, second market was a really interesting moment in time. Uh, we were building an electronic marketplace for illiquid financial assets in a moment during the, the great financial crisis when everything was illiquid. And so I did um, kind of corp dev uh, strategy work, biz dev, working really closely with, with Barry, helped with a couple uh, fundraises, worked on geographic and product expansions. And definitely one of the greatest learning moments for me was um, we were in the heart of the financial crisis. We were putting in a competitive bid to be one of the service providers for TARP and TELF, um, which you know 
folks, if you, if you go back and, and remember what happened during the financial crisis, there obviously were a set of government coordinated, you know, asset relief programs, and they needed custodians and liquidators um, for those. And we were trying to position ourselves as such. And so I was taking the lead on um, a joint bid with a major uh, real estate um, services firm, a much, much larger company than we. And simultaneously, was helped building up a, um, a couple of the marketplaces we were launching. And I think one of the, the weirder days I've ever had, it, I went from a series of meetings on that, you know, government tarp health program to later in the day, working on brokering a whole loan sale for a distressed marina on the Florida coast. And so it's definitely the ability to like, you know, context shift and deal with multiple fire drills simultaneously. I think it's a, a really vital skill as an entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, working for Barry, particularly at that moment in time at Second Market, um, definitely stretched me in that uh, in that way. And it's like you were at all times kind of like preparing and shaping up the path of what would be your entrepreneurial journey. Because, you know, as they say, obviously, I mean, your excuse to move to California was the MBA. But as they say, doing an MBA is a really good uh, opportunity to meet your co-founder for, for, yeah. for a potential next business. So everything, you know, it, it seemed to be aligning. But for you, it definitely did. And that's how you got started with your first day, baby, with your first company. So tell us how that journey was. I, I decided to come back to the West Coast and I used grad school as a, as a way of doing that. I went, went to Stanford. It was a great experience, very entrepreneurial uh, uh, program, also very you know, connected to the tech and venture capital ecosystem. And um, that, that was, it was just great kind of exposure for me. I spent um, my first year kind of doing what the normal MBA thing. And I honestly spent a lot of my second year thinking about what type of company um, I wanted to start. I was I was reasonably committed to starting a company, and really was just looking for the right confluence of idea and uh, co-founders to uh, to do that. And so, funnily, um, through a whole set of conversations with one of my classmates, um, a guy named Alex Tanelli, we ultimately got really excited about um, starting a company to solve the problem of small business credit access. And our our kind of windows into that problem were twofold. Uh, first off. Alex and a few partners had started, and I was an investor in um, a set of gym franchises of all things, you know, small key card access uh, gyms. And we had a heck of a time getting a loan for that business. And this is despite, you know, great collateral, good personal credit, willing to do guarantees and so forth. We could not get a $100,000 small business loan to save our life. And again, this is right after financial crisis. Banks aren't lending. You know, the economy is still kind of, uh, you know, recovering. That was the first. And the second uh, window into this is, both Alex and I, in, in our prior lives, we'd been involved in, you know, investing and in, in kind of liquidity formation programs where we were forming tens of millions of dollars for uh, companies and assets that frankly felt a lot riskier than this loan to a, a, a well-performing gym. And so that just opened our eyes to the fact that there was a bit of a disconnect in terms of how the capital markets uh, and lending markets were working. And so summer of 2011, we started a company to... Uh, uh, to solve exactly that. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. I mean, it was quite a journey in the sense that it was like two forces coming together. So you had, you know, what ended up becoming Funding Circle, right? But you had this group in the UK. Uh, you guys were in the US. So what was that process like, you know, all the way to thinking, hey, maybe it makes sense to combine forces here? Yeah. So we, when we started um, the US business, we had raised a couple million bucks, hired an initial team, got to launch. And we were out doing our second fundraise, uh, you know, what, what today would probably be called a, a you know, Series A. I think we, we I think it was technically our B. I think we called our seed round the A. Long story short, though, we got to know a great group of guys in the UK who were doing a very similar business. And they were just about a year, maybe 18 months ahead in terms of the progression of what they were doing. And they were very interested in um, doing something in the US. And it definitely was in fits and starts. But, you know, over the series of literally about nine months of getting to know them, we ultimately decided that um, we wanted to team up. And so summer of 2013, we, we combined those, uh, those two businesses. We kept the Funding Circle brand, which I think is a, a really great brand, um, already had real cred in the UK. You know, kind of rest was history. So uh, beginning of summer 2013, the US arm basically become a, a, you know, became part of the Funding Circle group overall. And uh, soup to nuts, I ended up staying involved with that company for about seven and a half years um, up until when we took the company public in uh, 2018. Because what, for the people that are listening to really understand it, what ended up being the business model of Funding Circle as a whole? Yeah. So, so Funding Circle uh, was and is a marketplace for small business loans. And so the idea was to, on the one hand, have a very efficient tech forward way of originating small business credit, figuring out how to price and underwrite that credit uh, well. And then on the back end of the business, and this is the other side of the marketplace, have a variety of different ways of forming liquidity for those small business loans. And so we started with retail investors as well as accredited investors in the US and some private funds. Over time, we opened up an institutional whole loan marketplace, um, which became a very important source of liquidity for, for, for the business. And then eventually also started doing um, balance sheet securitizations um, as, uh, as well. And so that's really what it was designed as, was a non-bank digital first lender specifically focused on serving the needs of high quality uh, small businesses that uh, needed term finance. I think that one of the most important, I, I would say, is skill sets or, or areas where an entrepreneur needs to really shape themselves a little bit is, is on being able to deal with uncertainty, but then also managing crisis. And I know that in 2016, you had everything happening all at once with a cyber attack and with a bunch of other stuff. So tell us what exactly happened and how do you think that shaped you up to be uh, in order to be able to know, hey, this is how you deal with fires as an entrepreneur. This is what it, yeah. what it looks like. I'll start with 2015 was a year of incredible breakout success and growth for Funding Circle. 
Um, I remember the U.S. operation, we, we grew that 368% year over year. Um, it really felt like we had the wind at our back. And then early in 2016, had a whole set of crises, some specific at FC, some much more industry-wide that happened virtually all at once. Started with um, the ABS market freezing up in early 2016, and there being a whole set of credit issues across the space, uh, particularly with some of the more mature uh, publicly traded folks in the uh, consumer lending space. You saw um, a few companies, uh, basically, um, not, not Funding Circle, but a few of our kind of quasi peers either uh, go bankrupt or have serious restructuring issues in very short order. The equity market uh, uh, dried up. The debt market was already dry. And then midway through the year, I remember one week where I think we had, in a particular time, we had one major lending counterparty uh, pullout because they were just worried about general trends in the category. We had a cyber incident that we needed to manage. And I had a really detailed regulatory inquiry um, where we didn't do anything wrong, but they were doing an industry-wide inquiry, which is always really scary, and where we had to be very responsive on um, very short order. And so dealing with 2016, both for Funding Circle specifically, but also just you know as trying to be a leader in the space, taught me a tremendous amount around crisis management, frankly, also just leadership as a, as a general point. We, we ultimately got through it. The business was stronger for it, um, but definitely took a lot out of me uh, during, the, uh, d- during, during the year. Yeah, no kidding. Now, prior to, the, um, to taking the company public, how much did the company raise? Oh, uh, gosh. So before Funding Circle went public, I think we'd raised about $370 million in equity. Wow. And, and, and I guess, you know, in your case, so taking the company public, obviously incredible company, really, really big operation. At what point do you realize, hey, I think it, it probably makes sense for me to take a step back and, and see and take a look what maybe the next chapter may look like? Yeah. I mean, look, as a, as a founder or as a uh, senior business leader, the decision to take a step back is not one to take lightly, right? I felt like a lot of folks were counting on me and I felt like I had a moral obligation to my team, to our investors, uh, you know, frankly, to myself to, uh, to make sure that if I were going to do a transition, I'd, I'd do it in the right way. And I would say... For me, the transition happened because two things lined up. One is, honestly, I was just ready to go. I needed a break. I was exhausted, particularly after the year that I'd had in 2016. You know, I think I, I gained and lost probably 25 pounds. Definitely my, my beard went gray um, through that year and, um, you know, ultimately got to a point where the business was, you know, still growing and still had a lot to figure out, but it was much more stabilized. And so that was really the confluence of things is I felt like I was ready to transition and I also felt like I could without letting people down. And I was really lucky to um, be able to find a great successor to take on my role, you know, as part of the executive group. And I, I stayed on as a, as a board member and advisor and helped continue to help with our US operation for, for a bit after I transitioned. Um, and I did all of that um, kind of spring of 2018. Then let's talk about now the, the next chapter, Vouch. So how did Vouch, the idea of Vouch, come knocking to you? And and at what point do you say to yourself, I think, I think this has legs. It makes sense to go after this one. Yeah. After I transitioned out of Funding Circle, I actually spent a number of months really just trying to decompress and like spend time with my family and exercise and catch up on sleep. And I'm really glad that I did because it, after a couple of months, it really felt like my head, head was sufficiently clear. And one thing that really stood out for me was I definitely felt like I had another company in me. And I remember distinctly I had a conversation with... Um, a pretty prominent uh, venture capitalist at Index who'd been a major backer in Funding Circle and Index is now also a, a, an investor in Vouch. Long story short, he gave me a really useful piece of advice, which is 
you know, Sam, if you want to, if you want to operate, you should make a decision. Do you want to deal with your own problems or do you want to deal with other people's problems? And what he was getting at is building a company as an entrepreneur is a very different mindset and has a very different set of trade-offs versus going in and operating something that someone else built or a series of people have built where you're inheriting problems and your job is ultimately to fix those. And for me at that point in time, I really gravitated toward building something again from, from the ground up. And so then it really just came to, you know, what idea and with what uh, partner or partners and through a series of, of kind of explorations, got into a really good conversation with um, Travis, who is now my co-founder at Vouch, as well as our early backers and strategic partners at Ribbit and Silicon Valley Bank. And Ribbit has, uh, they had a great run as a fintech-focused venture fund. Nick Shalik, who's one of the GPs there, was a, a friend from business school. He's actually my next-door neighbor for a bit. I'd been talking to Nick for years about ideas in you know, fintech broadly and in insurance specifically. And he had gone and done a tremendous amount of work around the commercial insurance space. They were excited about the idea of investing in and helping incubate um, a new company in the commercial insurance space. And uh, Travis was coming out of um, Silicon Valley Bank, where SVB saw this problem very acutely through the lens of all their clients. And so ultimately, um, we all teamed up summer of 2018 with really two uh, core beliefs in mind. The first was this notion that you could use technology and advanced analytics to build fundamentally better commercial insurance products and experiences. And the second was we, we believed that the venture-backed ecosystem, you know, high-growth technology and life sciences companies, really were deserving of a dedicated insurance provider in their own right. And so those were the, th those were the two, two beliefs we all got excited about just based on the work that, uh, that we'd done. And that's, uh, that's kind of the, the inception story for, uh, for, for Vouch. Nice. So then what is the uh, business model here? How do you guys make money? So the purpose of Vouch is to help entrepreneurs manage their most important risks. You know, when we think about the role we are playing, it's to work with entrepreneurial high growth companies at virtually any stage and make sure they understand the risks they have in their business, figure out which are the ones they need to transfer, transfer, you know, through insurance, and then have the right mix of commercial insurance products, you know, available so that we can help them uh, mitigate and transfer those risks. We are currently set up as a insurance holding company. We have what's called a, a managing general agent um, uh, subsidiary as well as our own affiliated insurance company. We've used that infrastructure and our relationships with uh, carrier as well as reinsurance partners to build a set of um, bespoke commercial insurance solutions really focused on the needs of the venture-backed ecosystem. And today we will cover companies basically from inception to IPO across technology, life sciences, as well as a, a variety of emerging and frontier tech uh, categories. In your case, I mean, you are a proven founder. I mean, you took a company public. So why did you go into Y Combinator? So YC was a bit of a controversial choice for that exact reason, but ultimately got into a great conversation with a couple of the partners there. They really encouraged us to apply. And their thought was, well, gosh, if you can spend your time in a YC batch doing product discovery, really spending time with other entrepreneurs who are themselves building their businesses, won't that be incredibly helpful for guiding your intuition um, around what products need to be built and how do you position this so that you can win in this market? And YC, I do think, has this incredible ability to be on the bleeding edge of where entrepreneurs are spending time. And if you take you know, what it, what the set of companies that are in any YC batch, it's probably a pretty good 
proxy or representation for the types of companies that are doing innovative things much more broadly. It's obviously not comprehensive, all of them, but it's a good indicator of, of where, where folks are spending time. And so our thought was if we did YC, not only would it be, be a great investor, and they are a great investor, but it would also be an opportunity for us to really go deep with, with users and, and, and understand their needs, which then would be really helpful um, in terms of finding product market fit. Now, for you guys, how much money have you raised to date? So to date, we've raised $160 million, um, in equity capital. And how has that uh, process been? Uh, like from financing cycle to financing cycle, I'm, sh I'm sure that the expectations have also uh, changed. And, and also, you guys have raised uh, all this money in, in almost no time. So I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of listeners right now, you know, wondering, oh, I wonder, like, what is it like going from an A to a B, and especially in, in a regulated space like, uh, like this insurance? Yeah, it's a great question. So my experience around fundraising is every fundraise is a little bit different. There are certain things that are consistent, right? The, how you run a type process, how you think about some of the mechanics like data rooms and term sheet negotiation, and et cetera. But I would say the, 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 the bigger factors that shape fundraises really do vary based on stage of company, general market conditions, and also uh, competitive market dynamics. Early on, we were really lucky to have um, a lot of interest in raising capital quickly because folks bought into this as a need and we had a great, great team. And I, and I say that humbly, like I was really lucky to have a great team early on in the company's journey. And that I think was really helpful. And since then, and this is just, I think, generally true, as you take a company from an idea phase, right, a seed or even an early series A to more of a C or B, you know, stage business, a lot more of it is around data, right? The story matters. But you also need data and, and kind of proof points to back up what you're doing. I do think insurance and regulated businesses in general also have other aspects to them that shape uh, fundraises. One is there are going to be certain investors who frankly just won't touch heavily regulated and or complex balance sheet businesses at all. And you should just know that going into it, right? You don't need to appeal to everybody. All you need to do is appeal to, to, to the folks who could be a great partner for the business. And the second thing that I think is, is true about businesses like this is you need a really thoughtful way of telling the equity story that shows you're thoughtful to some of the constraints that come with this complexity, but also have an eye toward building a really high growth, really great business, even in a regulated and or more capital intensive um, space. And so I'm always one to you know be very upfront that there are certain risks and complexities with this business that may not exist in a traditional software company. But at the same time, with that comes the fact that there's, frankly, less competition and also the fact we're playing in one of the largest markets in the world, right? If you look at the amount of commercial insurance spend in the U.S. per year, it's about $350 billion per year. There are multiple commercial insurance companies and distributors that most people have never heard of who have market caps between $1 and $20 billion. So there's a lot of TAM and a lot of market cap to go around if you can build a really good company and do it in the right way. And so that's always what I'm honed in on is it's about products, it's around go to market, it's around how you build your infrastructure in the right way, and it's really around having a thesis around how you can build something that's big and durable at scale. So as we're thinking that and projecting that into the future, especially for Vouch, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later. I mean, tremendous news, right? And, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Vouch is fully realized. What does that world look like? So our vision for Vouch is to be the leading provider of commercial insurance for innovators. 
And so the way I think about this is market share and market penetration on the one hand and customer satisfaction and retention on the other. We are still early days, right? For the startup ecosystem, you know, we probably have something like 5% market share for all, all startups that are out there, right? It's growing really quickly. Our business grew, you know, 250% plus last year. You know, we're on pace for another very strong year uh, so far this one. But gaining market share is an important feature. The other, though, is making sure that the experience we're delivering for clients at time that we sell them insurance, but also through the full life cycle of their time with us, that's also really strong. What we're seeing is um, an industry-leading net promoter score. That's something we look at uh, very carefully. Both our unit and premium retention year over year are very strong. You know, we're seeing well over 100% year-over-year premium retention. Matter of fact, our cohorts grow meaningfully after we acquire a, a batch of clients. And what we're seeing is, frankly, many companies go from being very baby, small companies, to being very large, mature, you know, tech and life sciences companies, all the while, you know, continuing to choose Vouch as their insurance partner. And so I, I think we are on the right track, um, while at the same time being very aware there's still a long way to go. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine. And I bring you back in time. And maybe it's that time where you're still at Stanford. You know, you are there maybe like brainstorming with your co-founder. You know, what's going to be that next thing that you guys are going to build? Imagine you had the opportunity of sitting you and then also your, your co-founder uh, down uh, and giving, you know, these this younger guys a piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? What, 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 what I would say is um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat. I'm going to give you two. The first is build a team with complementary skills, right? I think a mistake that particularly MBAs make is you build a team that kind of looks and acts and talks like you. And that is a real mistake in a startup, particularly if you want to build a, a tech-driven startup. So focus on complementary skills. And the second piece of advice I would give my, my younger self is get after it, get moving, right? Quit, quit analyzing, quit overthinking things. Um, instead, build a prototype, build something you think people will use. Get it in the hands of customers and users. See what they do. Get their feedback and then iterate from there. And those are things where, I mean, it's kind of in the water, so to speak, in the valley now. But I think particularly as a younger entrepreneur, um, I really wish I'd had those lessons hammered into me a bit more. Would have saved me a lot of time and pain earlier in my journey. I love it. So, Sam, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So you can, you can find me on email. I'm just uh, sam.hodges at vouch.us. If you are interested in learning more about what Vouch does, it's just vouch.us. Um, I'm also on social, uh, you know, on Twitter, I'm Hodges Sam. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find and uh, always love interacting with other entrepreneurs and folks in the secret system. So please do look me up if I can be helpful in any way. Amazing. Well, hey, Sam, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.